And welcome to this latest edition of Real Deal Podcast, episode 88886, eight, eight, the new NBA. I'm your host, of course, Real Gerald Quinn, discussing the world of sports and pop culture. Of course, we are finally, finally set with the NBA Finals. It'll be the Nuggets and the Heat uh, on Thursday in, in Denver. Denver has home court, of course, with Boston falling. In seven games, um, should be a fun series. We'll, we we will discuss that series. We're, we're going to discuss the finals later on in the podcast because we got to get to the uh, carnage that still remains at the uh, what used to be called not the Boston Garden, but it's you know at the TD Bank TD or TD Bank Center. They, they say, changed the name so many times I can't even keep up. It used to be the Fleet Center, but the carnage that's left in Boston and. You know, I was thinking about this. Um, I, yeah, I think I'd rather be swept. I think I'd rather be swept than to be down 3-0, come back, and get spanked on my own home court um, by 20 points or 19, 19 points. I think I think I actually rather be swept. I think I'd rather get swept. I mean, because if, if you get swept, listen, you get swept. It's clear that you your team just wasn't good enough. You might need to make a coaching change. Like uh, uh, there's clarity to getting swept. Like there's no if ands or buts. There's no like there are questions. Your team has questions, but you should you should know the answers to those questions. With losing coming back from a three nothing deficit to tie the series and then to get smoked. At your home, you know, in, in, in Game Seven, it's just like it's it just doesn't make sense. Like it just doesn't make sense. And it clearly described none of this series as a whole was very bizarre. It made it didn't make sense, but it made all the sense in the world. Um, before we get to Boston, because I had plenty on Boston, got a lot on on the Celtics. We had the deep dive on the Celtics. Miami clearly, I don't want to hear today that Boston was a better team. They're not. Was Boston a more talented team? Yes. Would I rather have Boston's roster than Miami's roster? Yes. Shit. shit. I'd rather have Boston's roster than probably anybody else's roster in the league, to be honest with you, with the type of talent, young talent that they have and depth that they have coming off the bench. The bottom line is Miami was and is a tougher basketball team. Miami was tougher than Milwaukee. They were tougher than the Knicks, and they were tougher than the Heat. And they, there is a something to be said about mental toughness. And but but like, what is toughness in, in professional sports in twenty twenty three? Toughness is not getting in, getting in somebody's face, rah, 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 all that bullshit and barking. No no no, that's not toughness. Toughness is losing a heartbreaking loss. At your home place, when you are literally like 0.1 seconds away from the finals, at home, having to fly to Boston, being basically being on the cusp of being on the the worst part of history as far as NBA history, going to 3-0 lead, bouncing back and taking it to a team that was favored to get to the finals, taking it to a team that was favored to win the championship. Um, or was the second favorite behind Milwaukee to win the championship before these playoffs began in terms of the Boston Celtics. And winning a place that, winning against a team that has 
you know, no one has won more game seven games than the Boston Celtics over the course of their history. No one has a better winning percentage with, in terms of uh, with at least five game sevens played than the Boston Celtics. That's toughness. And the Miami Heat embodied all of that. And it starts with, it starts from the top. It starts with Pat Riley, you go to Eric Spolcher, Jimmy Butler, and so on and so on. And that's what Boston doesn't have right now. Sure, they're an excellent organization. Um, all right, I, matter of fact, I'm going to get to Boston. I, let me say the Boston stuff. As far as this game goes, and if you notice, I'm not talking much about the game because it, it frankly was not much of a game. You know, after, uh, especially, you know, fourth quarter, it was, you know, just Miami just completely took control late in the third quarter. Early uh, in the fourth quarter, of course, they just, you know, annihilated the Celtics. Really, Miami was in control from this game from start to finish. Boston only had 15 first quarter points. Miami set the tone. That's what you want to do when you're on the road in a game seven. You want to immediately, you want to hit first because a home team can come back from a big deficit. I've seen it before. Lakers, uh, Lakers, Blazers, uh, Lakers, Portland, 2000. But you get down at on the road, you can be knocked out in the first quarter easily. We've seen it. Tons of times. You could be knocked out in the first quarter. You could be knocked out in the second quarter on the road. So Miami was very important for Miami. Excuse me, coming off that game six disaster uh, to knock to hit first. They hit Boston first. They catch the break, of course, unfortunately, for Boston with the Jason Tatum injury uh, ankle. He was never the same, but I don't want to hear any excuses because he played 43 minutes and he did have 11 rebounds. I know he only got up 13 shots. He clearly was hampered. We know he couldn't move defensively. We know that he didn't was didn't have nowhere near the explosion. Probably was playing at 50%, 60%, whatever you want to buy. He was not he was not the Jason Tatum that the Boston Celtics needed uh last night. But hey, injuries are an unfortunate part of, of sports, basketball. I hate to see it. But that was not the reason why the Celtics lost that game. Celtics lost that game because they shot nine of forty-two. On the three-point line. The Celtics lost that game because their second-best player, a player who I'm fond of in terms of his game, uh, in in uh, uh, in uh, Brown, um, Jalen Brown. I'm a, I'm a big Jalen Brown fan. Big Jalen Brown fan in terms of his game. Had one of the worst playoff games of his, of his career. Eight turnovers, one of nine from the three-point line, and just looked totally lost. He looked he looked completely lost. I'm not gonna say he was scared. He was just he just was trying too hard. He the whole Boston team, with the exception of Derek White, was in essence trying too hard uh to compensate. Because they knew as a player, you know when your when your top guy is not right. They knew that uh they knew that um that Tatum, Jason Tatum wasn't right. And they knew that they would have to pick it up for them to have it, for them to have any chance of winning uh that game. But Boston, you know, just came out and, you know, they, they finished 9 for 42 from the three-point line. They started the, the game 0 for 12 from the three-point line. You had Shaq back in joke saying, you know, basically saying, I don't know if it was after this is the halftime or at the in the postgame, and uh, the the, uh, the after show, basically saying, you know, if someone kept shooting after 10 missed shots or 12 missed shots, I'm going to punch that dude, I'm going to punch him in the face. Like, stop shooting threes. If they looked, if for a second, I I thought they were going to seriously challenge 
for Houston's record uh, for the 27 straight missed threes back in 2018. They were they, they were missing threes at that rate, that that poorly. Um, they eventually made a couple in the second quarter. They had a 26-point second quarter to kind of like stabilize the game, Miami. But again, you never thought, I never thought that Boston was in this game, that Boston was, was ever going to win this game. You give Miami all the credit in the world. Um, Miami, again, they hit first. Caleb Martin, who should have been the MVP of the uh, of the Eastern Conference, and I'll, I'll talk more about that. But he should have been the MVP of the Eastern Conference. He was phenomenal. He had like twenty six and ten. Um, he had like twenty six and ten. Uh, twenty five rebounds the last two games uh, for the series. He goes nineteen and six, sixty percent from the field, forty nine percent from the three point line. He was there. He was clearly the most consistent player. Clearly the most consistent player. And again, but. It comes down to name recognition. Nobody knows who Caleb Martin is if you're not bad, if you're not a serious basketball fan. So I, you know, I you know, I said it on my text thread. Jimmy Butler, Caleb Martin should get it, but Jimmy Butler will get it. Jimmy Butler beats Caleb Martin out by one vote uh for the MVP. And I think I think for the MVP, the Eastern Conference MVP, they need to treat that like the NHL treats the con spife. There's a reason why Jimmy Butler won it, won it was what he did previously in the previous series against Milwaukee and, and also New York. So let's make it a award that celebrates the entire Eastern Conference that, 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 that that's a culmination of the entire Eastern Conference playoffs. Similar to, like I said, what the Conn Smythe is, is the entire, is a culmination of the entire Stanley Cup playoffs and you get rewarded for that. You don't just get, there's no Stanley Cup finals MVP. There's just a Conn Smythe uh, is the whole the whole shebang, the whole entire playoffs in the NHL? I would say I still had the NBA Finals MVP. I wouldn't I wouldn't touch that because the five Finals is a separate entity versus the rest of the playoffs. But I think for the for the Conference Finals MVP, you can accumulate the the first three rounds and judge it by that because that's why Jimmy Brown, that's why Jimmy Butler won the award. He won the award for what he done in the previous series. He had he had in essence we and. Three and a half good games. He had a good game one, good game two. They didn't need him in game three. He didn't play well in game three. Uh, games four and five, he was terrible. Game six, he was he was terrible up, up until like the last quarter, the last two minutes, the last quarter, he had 15 points. In this game, he was solid. He had a very good game. This game made some big shots. Uh, made, made some big shots in the third quarter um, and uh, finished it off in the fourth quarter. But he had, a, he had a very good game in this game. So I would say he had three, basically three and a half, good, three and a quarter good games. Caleb Martin was solid, was consistent throughout, throughout this entire series. The only reason, Caleb, the only reason Jimmy Butler averaged more points because he took more shots than Caleb Martin, which is expected. He is the, uh, Butler is that number one guy. That's the only reason, I mean, Butler for the series averaged 24 points. Caleb Martin averaged 19. And the only reason, like I said, the only reason he averaged more points was he took more shots. But as far as efficiency, as far as who was the guy that that hurt the Celtics the most in this series, it was Caleb Martin. And I, I, I guarantee you any Celtic with, with, with in their right mind would tell you that if you gave him, gave him the truth serum. But, you know, he's going to, Caleb Martin eventually is going to make, you know, if he keeps playing like this and has a good year next year, he's going to get his money. He's going to eventually, he's going to eventually get paid. But uh, he was phenomenal in this series. I mean, he was just absolutely phenomenal. He was fearless. He, I mean, you would have thought that this guy was like if you hadn't, if you didn't know anything about the NBA and hadn't watched, if you, if you, if you were not a basketball fan, you just started watching 
the basketball, like in this particular series, you would think Kelly Martin was one of the top 10 players in, the, in, in basketball or top You would think he was an all-star. You're like, well, wait a minute. He's not an all-star. That's how, that's the level he played at. Again, he was absolutely fearless in this series. And, you know, Miami, they are, um, they are kind of ahead. Of the, I, I want to say they are ahead of the, ahead of the curve here. As far as how you look at them having seven undrafted free agents, look at guys like Martin, Vincent, Duncan Robinson was great. I thought Duncan, especially last two games. I know he missed two big threes in the uh, last game, but they they don't even sniff that 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 comeback isn't possible in Game Six if not for Duncan Robinson's uh, fourth quarter. Some of the plays he made, some of the shots he made. You saw, I mean, you saw Duncan Robinson taking people off the dribble, cutting, passing. He blocked the shot last night. He um, he just, I mean, Duncan, oh, maybe that was game six when he blocked the shot and then took someone off the drill. But Duncan Robinson was was great in the series. Like, Duncan Robinson, I mean, he shot the lights out, and he, he his defense was good enough to keep him on the floor. Remember, in past postseasons, especially last couple of postseasons, that was the issue with Duncan Robinson. He couldn't stay on the floor because of how how poorly he was on the defensive end. Defensive end. That was not the case in this series. He, he was tremendous. Uh, their role players... Those, those role players were were spectacular. Uh, even Highsmith, the limited time he got starting, you know, in Game Six, um, you know, he picks, he picks uh, Jason, he picked Jason uh, Tatum clean with something. That's something that you that's that's how I knew you knew Jason Tatum wasn't right because he never gets picked like that. He picks he picks his pocket and leads to a layup. And um, Miami's ahead of the curve. They're frankly ahead of the curve as an organization because. The way, and we're not going. I'm not going to go too heavy into the CBA. Um, not going too heavy into it in, for this uh, podcast. But the way the CBA is going to be constructed, it is not going to lend itself to teams stacking their rosters. You're not going to be able to have three and four All Stars. Those days, those Super Team days, I were over to me beforehand. Now they are absolutely officially over from that standpoint. You are going to have to. Draft well. You're gonna to have to play develop well. You're gonna to have to do. You're gonna. You're gonna. You're gonna have to find a number of hidden gems. Yes, you're gonna have money to get two stars on your team to pay a couple of stars. But outside of that, you don't have to do it the way Miami is doing it. And if you look at Miami's four year run, they go finals, first round, conference finals, NBA finals. That's a hell of a run. It's a hell of a run for four years, and that is. Is, is almost without winning a championship, that is almost as good as it gets because for this new NBA, you're not going to be able to stack your teams like that. You're not going to be able to sign a lot of veteran players unless veteran players are just going to pay for next to peanuts or no money. You are going, as a, as a team contending for a championship or any team for that matter, you're going to be hamstrung, hands tied with this new CBA coming up. This new CBA is going to change the way teams have to construct their rosters, change their philosophies in terms of how they spend their money uh, with the luxury tax. I'm telling you right now. So Miami is already ahead of the curve in terms of how they run their organization with the play, with the player development, with the discipline, with the culture. Like they have guys, they're going to, they have guys, they're going to find a lot of guys, they're going to find someone else's, you know, trash and turn them into gems. That's all it is to turn them to treasures. That's all it is to it. Like they're gonna like Keller Martin got released by the Hornets, you know, which doesn't say much for the Hornets, but you know we we, we were not even talking about Keller Martin 
like two years ago. He barely played. He was on. He actually was on the team last year. Um, been playing game seven last year. Averaged, you know, about I want to say seven points for the series, something like that. Uh, limited had lim- got limited minutes, but it was not a major factor. It was was next to was was not a factor whatsoever in terms of last year's conference finals. He just wasn't. So that is, you know, that Miami's again is already ahead of the curve as far as how important your the front office is going to your front office is going to be drafting, developing talent, and they are well deserving of going to the NBA Finals this year. And uh, we'll talk more about them um, when, we, when we preview the finals. Uh, as far as so. Quick little stat here. Of course, I gave you the three-point stats. I have some more three-point stats. So, for the series, Miami, Boston shoots 30% for the series from three-point line. 30% on 267 attempts. Miami, on 209 attempts, right? 50, what's that? 58 less attempts. They shoot 43%. And actually, Miami made, despite the fact that they had 58 less attempts, Miami actually outshot Boston in terms of three-pointers made 89 to 81. So, yeah, you can shoot the three, but how you utilize it is a whole other story. And the one team actually you know, made shots. But one team, that tells me that Miami just got better shots. We took better shots. Um, since the bubble, now I'm excluding the bubble because there was no home court advantage in the bubble. Uh, so I'm excluding the bubble. So road teams in Game Sevens, excluding the bubble, are nine and seven since 2018 in Game Sevens. I repeat that: road teams in 2000, uh, since 2018 in the playoffs are nine and seven in Game Sevens. Uh, on the road. Um, and this was a time where if you had game seven, it was an automatic basically win for the team. Like, all just automatic. Like, you would see, like, Houston was the first one that it stood out that a team won a game seven on the road to me as a kid growing up. Like, that that stood out because you just, you, you did not see it you, growing up. Once a team got game seven on the road, and normally more times than not, it would be a blowout. It would. Like, you know, you would see Chicago beat the Knicks in a game seven uh, in 92. Uh, you would see the Pistons, you know, beat the Bulls a couple times in game sevens. Um, I think in 89 and 90, maybe 89 was getting six games. 90 was definitely a game. They beat them in game seven before the Bulls overcame them in 91. I mean, many times, like, it was rare that a team won a game seven on the road. It just didn't happen. But, again, there's not, the home home field advantage, home court advantage is just not what it used to be. It's just not. Uh, so, but, I mean, you still got to have it. But it's definitely not the end-all, be-all. Uh, you know, a couple game seven, of course, the Lakers, you know, went on the road years back and, and took out uh, Sacramento and that, you know, I'm sure Sacramento remembers that. As a, as a series to forget, especially game six and seven if you're Sacramento for other reasons. Um, but it's, it's very rare that you win a game seven. Uh, it, it, it used to be very rare that you would win a game seven on the road. Now it's happening a lot. 
especially, I mean, we saw the, the, the finals in 16 with LeBron taking out uh, Golden State. I mean, we've seen Golden State do it a couple times. We've seen Golden State do it to Houston. They got Houston, and, uh, who won 65 games that year in 2018. Um, I mean, LeBron's done it, you know, to Boston. Uh, did it to had did it to Boston in 2018 in a game seven. So it it, it happens. It, it's happening more often than not. And even in these playoffs, I mean, you saw it with Golden State. Um, saw it with with, with uh, Golden State last year. Saw it with Boston against Miami. So. It's, it's, it's happening a lot in the 2020s, in the in, in the decade of the the 2020, the 2010s, and now uh, the 2020s. So we get to Boston. Uh, we'll talk more about Miami when we look at the pre- we do a finals preview. So what's next for the Celtics? Um, you finished with the second best record in basketball in basketball behind Milwaukee. You were one of the favorites to win the championship. Um, you do get to your fourth conference finals in six years. Uh, your fifth in seven years since 2017. So they were in the conference finals in 17, 18, uh, 17, 18, 20, 22, and 23. So they have been one of the most consistent franchises over the last like six or seven years. They've won a lot of games. They've won a lot of playoff series. They got to the finals last year, had a 2-1 lead, lost to a all-time great immortal player in Steph Curry. Excuse me. So, and I, and I was fine with that loss. They were not supposed to, they weren't supposed to win the championship last year. They weren't. They just were, were not. Um, Golden State had the experience. Steph Curry was the best player. I, I'm always big on experience in the finals. Um, that was a, and so I don't punish them for not winning a championship last year. This year, this is this year, this is a major. This this is I I'll say it. I'm sorry, Giannis. This is a failure. This is a major failure for that franchise because you lost to first of all, anybody will tell you in basketball, coaches, players, losing home games, home playoff games, game sevens are are the worst. That is that's if you like if you have a home playoff game a home game seven that means that you're probably the better team and we're the better team in the regular season and that's a game that you should win. Um, so those are those are rough losses. Injuries were standing again. I this I, this is not this series this game this series was not lost. Because of uh, Jason Tatum's ankle, this series was lost at in games one and two. To be honest with you, when they lost the first two games at home to Miami, uh, to Miami, that's when the series was lost. Um, there's a reason why it, no team has come back from 03 and now what 151 times in the history of the of the NBA. It probably was going to, more the way the game is headed now, it's probably going to happen one of these days, one of these years, one of the next three or four years is probably going to happen. But um, but there's a reason why it hasn't happened. So for Boston, if I'm Boston, if I'm, there, there, if I'm ownership, Brad Stevens, the, the the people that call shots, I'm not, you, you cannot panic. You can't panic. Um, because despite some of the, uh, despite what happened last night, you still have a lot going for you as far as the roster, as far as the culture, 
Um, I would not fire the coach. Uh, I t- to me, he did enough to turn around this series to get to a game seven to, to say that he could get another year and grow and develop, continue to improve and grow and develop as a head coach in this league. Now, I did not like his answer in the post game when he said, when he was asked, you know, did you did this team rely too much on the three point shot? He said, no. Yeah, you actually did. So I didn't like, but maybe, but that again, this is that's no, that's a tough spot. That's right after, uh, uh, just a brutal loss at your home court in the game seven. I'll give him a pass on on that, a semi pass on that. If you're at an organization, right, and I, there's some things about Missoula that I do like. He his temperament. He has a very level head. Not doesn't get too high. Doesn't get too low. Um, you know he he seems to have a great perspective on life, which is important with coaching and dealing with people. And whatever the players listen, whatever the players, whatever we told the players in those last three games, minus game seven, they clearly listened. So it's not like you can you can say that he, you know, that the players tuned him out that they or that he's not capable of reaching the players. He clearly did reach them. Boston needs a shift in philosophy. There's nothing wrong with shooting threes. We know the math. We know the analytics of it. We know we uh, we get it. You know, you hit 40%. That means somebody else has, has to hit 60% of twos. I, we, we understand that, right? You just got to have more. You just you can't be, you can't win a championship being a one-trick pony. And it became more about missing, making or missing threes than it became about defense. Last year, Boston was a defense-first basketball team, period. It was defense first, threes second. This year, it was threes first, defense second. That's not going to win you championships. It's just not. And again, you have to know how to use the three-point shot. The three-point shot is like candy. It's sweet, but too much of it make, can make you sick. You have to know how to use it because, you know, more times than not, you hear the old adage, live by a three, die by a three. More times than not, I've seen teams completely die by the three. I think the misnomer of watching Golden State all these years is the fact that, you know, you know, we get enamored with Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and Kevin Durant when he was on there. They made a lot of layups. <laughs> they used the three to generate, to get a lot of layups and dunks for some of their bigs inside. You know, whether it was Kevon uh, Looney, JaVale McGee. They got, they got a lot of easy shots with how they used, utilized the three-point shot. There will be times when they utilize the three-point shot as a decoy for some of their splits, split actions, and for some of their stuff, for, for guys cutting to the room. I mean, don't count how many layups if you watch a Golden State game in the past four or five years. How many layups or or some of the other guys gets get on cuts because of the threat of the three point shot? It's not just about jacking up three three point shot. Three, just jacking up threes, and some of the threes they were taking were contested. Some of the threes were those threes that Boston was taking early in the shot clock, one pass threes, and they completely defined their identity as a basketball team. They became known as hey. Hey, if we don't make if we make this amount of threes, then we'll win. If we don't make it, then we're probably not, we're probably gonna lose. It's not how you that's not how to build a basketball team. And someone, Brad Stevens, the ownership, or Brad Stevens, 
has to, you know, talk to Joe Missoula and be like, hey, Joe, we'd like you as a coach. You have to explain to us what next year is going to look at, look like. What did you learn from this year? What in regards to the three points? Trust me, I would just get right to it. Like, I would, if I was bad Stevens, I would just say, hey, we just, we took too many threes. We took too many threes. And how, like, how we, how are we going to use, the, how, like, how is this going to change moving forward? Something has to change. I'm not going to get into all the, the roster speaking. Who I, I would not, first of all, I'll, I'll say this. I would not trade Jalen Brown. I would not trade Jalen Brown unless Jalen Brown, now, if Jalen Brown is going to be off without offering the full max, yes, the $295 million, absolutely. Because someone else, you can't have, you can't have a situation where Jalen Brown um, is not in a contract going into next season. You just can't like that can't happen unless you unless you don't unless you feel like you want to trade him right now, which I don't think they do. That the, the, I'm not breaking up the Tatum Brown uh, twosome. I'm not. They're too young, too talented. There's a clear number one and a clear number two. You're not you're not getting a better number two than Jalen Brown, especially with the new CBA, and can afford to keep some of the players that you need as a for your court. You're just not. You're not Jalen Brown's gonna be probably the best number two that you can get. You're not getting a better number two. So you trade for him and then you have to again, that's chemistry. You have to like like you have to bring in some new guys or learn assist like that. No. You have a that twosome is fine. They just gotta get better. Jalen Brown can get better. Jason Tatum can get better. Like we need to be stopped like looking for easy outs. Well let's trade him. Or fire the coach. No, this is what player and organization organizational development should look like. Your people should be able to coach them up. Uh, or if you're a general manager, the coach can get better. Everybody can get better. If everybody gets better, you don't have to make all these try to make all these moves out of panic and emotional and frustration. Now, certain teams have to make moves. Like Phoenix is going to have to make moves. They can't. It goes without saying. Milwaukee is going to have to make a move. I don't think Boston has to make a lot of moves. If you want to move, sure. You want to move off Horford, sure. Or they might not be able to afford a couple of players based on this new CBA. That might be. They might not have a, have a choice. But the core of this team, Brown, um, Brown, Tatum, Smart, Eric White, uh, those guys should be back. Those guys absolutely should be back. I, now, Robert Williams, I don't know what, what they might they might lose him, possibly. But that core four should be back, and it's just a matter of everybody getting better. As, and I'm talking from the coach on down. Remember, Brown's only 26, Tatum's only 25. They can get better. Steph Curry didn't win a championship to what he's aged what 27. Like Golden State was one of the rare young teams in the recent memory that won championship that won a championship. I mean, I'm mean, even going back to when the Lakers. Kobe and Shaq, yeah, Kobe is 21, but Shaq was 29. They had other veteran players like Brian Shaw, uh, Ron Harper, Horace Grant. Those guys were veterans. Robert Ory, those guys had been in the league eight or nine years. They had, a, they had, you know, Kobe, basically, Kobe, Derek Fisher, Devin George were basically the only young players. The rest of those guys, Glenn Rice, were, those, those guys were all veterans in their late 20s, early 30s. So, I, I I'm not. I think the best, the worst thing, the best thing bad for Boston as a franchise to do is to take a deep breath, take some, you know, take a couple of days as a franchise, 
gather yourselves and not get caught up in in just Boston needs this, Boston needs that. Boston does not need a lot. They just need to get better within. Most of Boston's work has to come within. They lost this series because they lost to a team that is better coached than them, and they lost to a team that understands who and what they are as, in, in terms of their identity. That's why they lost this series. As far as the finals goes, um, listen, I, I think this is going to be a spectacular finals. Um, does the Denver deserve to be the favorites? Absolutely. Denver is well-rested. They have the best player in the series. They have two of the three. They have two of the three best players. I would say if I'm making the top three players, Jokic, Butler, and Murray, they have home court. Um, they're playing great basketball, but what they don't have that Miami has is finals experience. Now, outside uh, KCP, of course, has finals experience. Um, Miami has a ton of finals experience. Miami could get back. To, they probably Miami probably is going to get back Tyler Hero, and they're going to need all the firepower they can get. They're going to have to score some points against this Denver team, but I will. I, I'm. It would be foolish of me or anybody else to discount the Miami Heat. You can discount them all you want. Denver is a overwhelming favorite. They the line on the last line I saw was eight. I saw it, it when it was high as eight and a half, which for game one. And I'm like, listen, Denver has never been to the NBA Finals, and I like. Coaching advantage, I give Derek Spolster. I like Malone, but Spolster is a superior coach. Experience, I give the advantage to Miami and tangibles. I give the advantage to Miami. I think Denver has the best player in home court. And I I, I would pick Denver in seven. But I'm not if, – if a couple of weeks from now we're sitting here on, um, what, June 19th and, and the Miami Heat are your 2023 NBA champions, will I be shocked? No. Because that's, I mean, that's what the NBA, the NBA right now, there's no dominant team. Denver's not, these playoffs have looked the way they've looked for a reason. Like, don't, like, let's not treat Denver like Golden State 2017, 2018. They're not. <laughs> they're very, they are a very good team with a great, great player. They have some nice pieces. Um, as far as strategy, if I'm Miami, um, Jokic, I can't. I have to make Jokic a scorer. I want you. If Jokic gets thirty-five to forty in the series, so be it. I'm focusing on keeping him off the offensive glass, and I'm focusing on making sure that he doesn't have double digits and assists. I'm shutting everybody. I my main focus would be Jamal Murray. That's what would be the guy I would I would try to try to take out this series. I'll try to take him out this. I, that's the guy. I, Jokic is going to be Jokic. Jokic is going to get. Numbers and like that's all there is to it. He's just that dominant of a player right now. He's been the best player in the playoffs. But the guy who you can't let beat you is Jamal Murray. Jamal Murray can't like Jamal Murray destroyed the Lakers in that series. He shot average thirty two and six and shot like what fifty percent, fifty two percent, and over forty percent from the three point line. Like you can't, he can't put up those. Those I I need to bring those numbers down to around like twenty between twenty three and twenty five. And, you know, 45%, 44%, and, you know, maybe 35 to 38% from three. Like, those numbers need to come all the way down. And, again, I think people forget how close that Lakers series was with Denver. 
it's a very it was a close if there's such thing as a close four game sweep that it was that. So I think I'll take Denver in seven. I think it's a very closely contested series. I'll be certainly interested to see how Miami defends that Jokic Murray uh pick and roll, which is the most probably lethal offensive set in basketball right now. Um Jimmy Butler probably has to match Jokic as far as he if Jokic Jokic could be the best player. I, I mean Miami could win even if Jokic is the best player in the series, but Jimmy Butler has to be damn close to Jokic as the either one A or a close number two in terms of being dominant. Jimmy Butler has I would say this Butler has to play much better than what he played in this this the series against um uh the uh, the the series against Boston. He has to play they need they need Milwaukee Butler. They need that version of Jimmy Butler. Okay, they need that version of Jimmy Butler for them to win this series. So again, I, I will never doubt Eric Spolstra. Uh as far as like, you know, you I've heard a lot of people think thinking that Denver is going to run over Miami. That's not going to happen. Tell you right, that's not going to be think about sweep. This series, will, will, I, this series, I would, again will, will go no less than six games, and I think it will be. Well, it'll be a competitive six games. It won't be a three-one-six six games. It'll be a two-two uh, six or seven-game series. I have it Denver in six. Uh, excuse me, Denver in seven. We're in the program talking about the loss of a legend. Of course, last week, late last week, uh, Tina Turner passed away at the age of eighty. Three, um, 180 million albums sold, 12 time Grammy winner, uh, you know, the queen of rock and roll, a survivor, an icon, a visionary. Uh, she was all those things. Um, before I butcher my playlist from title somehow, don't even ask, I'm still pissed off about that. I had Golden Eye. Um, what else? I'm Tina Turner. We don't need another, and we don't need another hero. And I think I had the the best. No, Golden Eye, and we don't need another hero. One of the songs I had from Tina Turner that was stuck on my playlist uh, this past year. Um, so I saw. I mean, I watched the Tina Turner documentary off H- from HBO a couple years ago. And rewatched it over the weekend, and I, you know, you forget she was actually eighty three years old. Picture that you're seeing up, the picture that you see, this face that you see right now, this picture is probably that picture probably is at least twenty twenty five years old. That that, that probably that looks like the same picture. You know, her face looks the same as she did. That this picture looks like she did when she was getting interviewed by Larry King in '97. Somewhere that looks like late '90s, early 2000s. Um, that's the vision that I always had. The picture that of the, uh, that I always had of Tina Turner. Like I never thought this woman would ever age. So when you see, when I saw the documentary, you know it was kind of throwing back a little bit, but a little bit. Of course, yes. You know, as you get old enough, it doesn't matter. You know how much you take care of yourself. You're, you're going to age and things, wrinkles, things of that nature. You know, she still and someone for somebody eighty three, she looked phenomenal. I'm not trying to say she looked bad, but this is the vision that that picture that I always had of Tina Turner, um, who just defied everything. Um, she performed like well into her what sixties, maybe even early seventies. She was performing, 
um, she did things. She did it her way in the latter part of her year, her latter part of her career. She, of course, she lived with her husband and, and finished, died in Switzerland um, with a long-time husband. Um, she, I would say the thing that, that jumped out to her was just, that jumped out for me is just like the reinvention when she broke when she broke off from Ike Turner and what that what that what that took. I don't think people realize like once she got her name, she was doing Vegas she was on the Vegas strip, Cabaret, Hollywood Square. She was doing anything uh for money as far as performance because she was no longer had the comfort from a financial standpoint. Sure she of course she went through hell with the domestic violence from Ike Turner, but from a financial standpoint, she had to do it. She, she, I mean, she had to do it on her own in a sense. And remember, she's doing this. Like she's what early, late thirties, early forties, normally at a time when, you know, like women performing for like normally at a time where people would be trying to tell you, put you out the pasture. To be honest with you, in terms of, where she was at in terms of where like a lot of performers are at in their careers or some performers at were at in their careers. I mean, a lot of people thought that, you know, she wasn't, she wouldn't, she, the best of her was, the you know, Ike and Tina. And when she comes out, you know, in 85, um, what's love got to do with it. And, you know, her, you know, she just her the latter part of her career, the post Ike Turner, when she cuts her hair, reinvents herself, that was just another, that that was a new, a, another chapter, a new chapter in, in what was a just iconic career from, from basically from start to finish. And I, like I said, did, like you, I look back at her catalog as far as individual albums, it was not even Private Dancer. I don't, I don't consider that to be a classic album per se, but I think where she separates herself from a lot of artists is her songs were albums. Like GoldenEye to me was like an album. And I listened to Simply the Best was like an album. Um, we Don't Need Another Hero was like listening to an album. That's how layered and powerful these songs that she can't that she had and how how gifted how great these songs were. So it doesn't matter. If you, if you, you know, if you don't have, it doesn't matter if you have classic albums. If you're delivering those level of hits, and that that get that gonna get that get played endlessly and still to this day, um, that's when that's when you're at another level. And she, like, you know, she would fit in perfectly with the with with this time with how artists, you know, can become stars without having great albums. You know, you just need hits. You have to, you have a number of hits. You're good. Like Drake hasn't had to me hasn't had a classic album, uh, just a bunch of hits. But again, she um, again Survivor, you know, icon, visionary. Um, she was all those things and lived a long and lived a complete and full life. Tina Turner, uh, dead at the age of eighty three. That's gonna wrap it up for this latest edition of the Real Deal Podcast. Uh, this podcast will be up. By tomorrow, um, we will do a podcast. We'll do a Sunday podcast. We'll look back at game one and finals and also preview 
game two uh, on Sunday. Uh, on Sunday, I'm thinking, yeah, on Sunday. So I will see you. You will hear from me later on in the week. Enjoy the rest of your night, the rest of your week.